Well, I don't know if it's your uh, everyday, usual Sunday school story or, or not. Uh, kind of an unusual story that does talk about, uh, you know, the idea of having one audience. A few weeks ago, it, it's been crazy weather recently, hasn't it? Uh, a few days ago, it was negative five degrees or whatever, and this afternoon, I think it's supposed to be 60 degrees, and tomorrow a little warmer than that. Just this huge swing of, of temperatures and, and what the weather's like outside. Uh, it's sort of crazy to, to, to think about. Uh, when all that uh, cold weather and the snow coming in, we had a, we had a meeting scheduled here at Wallula a few weeks ago. For, uh, we call it uh, a bomb meeting, a board of ministries. It, it's a meeting that involves some of the leadership here, our, our elders and ministry team leaders and small group leaders, just folks uh, involved in different capacities and leadership here. And so uh, we uh, had, a, had a meeting scheduled and the weather started saying, well, it's going to start to freezing with freezing rain and then snow uh, at just the exact time that people would be traveling to the meeting and then uh, from the meeting. And so uh, a couple of folks started to call and say, hey, are we still meeting? I'm not sure if I want to come out in that weather. And we talked about it and decided, you know, I we, of course, don't want anybody, we want to keep everybody as safe as we can, and it's an important meeting, but maybe not that important, so we, we canceled the meeting for weather. We thought, though, we'd try something new, and, and we'd dispense the information in a different way, and, and somebody suggested, well, you could go on Facebook, you could do Facebook Live, and just share some of those ideas, and okay, well, we'll do that, and so my first thought was, I'm just going to stay in the office here, and I have everything I need, and everybody will be gone. And, and it'll be a, a great place for me just to share that information. And so I'll stay in the office and do that. And then, then I thought, well, uh, you know, I canceled this meeting so other people could be just at home and, and not have to travel. And, and uh, theoretically, if the roads are really bad or whatever, I'd be traveling home on those slick roads. I, there's no special equipment necessary for this little gig. And so maybe I, I, I'll just go home and do it. And, and it's one of those decisions that you're making that you... You know, it seems to check all the boxes and make a lot of sense, but maybe I, I had a better plan originally, right? I, I get home and set it all up. I decide I'm going to do this from my kitchen table. That'll be, that'll be nice, and I'll uh, sit at the table. And, but, you know, we're having this meeting, and kids are coming home from their school activities, and it's around supper time, and so we had dinner out and ready, and then, you know, the kids came in, and one of my daughters is, uh, you know, making stuff and putting it together. I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm making rice. I said, well, there's dinner already prepared. She said, I really like rice. I'm like, whatever. And so she's doing that. And, you know, I had this plan to, to log on and to be online a few minutes early and make sure everything was, was set up. But everybody was stirring around in the kitchen. And then my daughter, the rice daughter, sat down at the end of the table. And she's eating rice and said, can I just sit here and eat my rice? And I'm like, I don't care. You know, that's fine. I'm just going to watch you and eat my rice. Okay whatever. And so she's doing that, and I'm online and trying to figure it out and doing that stuff. And, and then, uh, you know, I'm like, hey, Clayton, go check and make sure you can hear this. I've got a microphone plugged in, make sure that's working. So I'm just not moving my mouth with no words sort of thing. And, and uh, so he went, and then, you know, 
I'm just feeling my age, right? Things are sort of going downhill, and I've got three technological experts that I live with trying to fix all of those issues, and people are logging in. See, part of the deal here is, is I thought, well, I'll do this Facebook video thing, uh, Facebook Live, and, and uh, you know, nobody will log in to watch this anyway. And then I'll just be able to send an email or whatever and say, hey, go to the Facebook page and check out this video at your convenience because it's a snow day, right? I mean, when the snow day happens and the professor cancels class, nobody logs in online to study. Uh, it's a snow day. And so I thought, well, nobody's going to watch this anyway. And, uh, and I get it set up. I'm a little late getting it set up, so I'm not as prepared as I'd like to be to start right away. And, and then people start to log in. And there's way more people watching online than would have come to the meeting originally. And they start to comment, you know. And I'm like, hey, how's it going? And, and things are going poorly. And uh, things are, I'm getting irritated with the rice eater at one end of the table. And just to be real honest, right? And, and uh, some of the other technological advice that I'm receiving. And, and then I get a text message from one of our elders who says, Lance, you're live. I'm like, yeah, yeah I know, <laughs> you know, I, I know I'm live. It, the, it, it's, this is just as good as it gets. You know, I can't, I can't, I'm not very good. You know, this is all there is. And so uh, thank you for the, for the, for the uh, input, but uh, this is as good as it gets. And so I anticipated my audience to be one thing, and then it was something else. And I've got friends, you know, sending messages. This looks like my parents when they try to FaceTime me. And I'm like, thank you. You know, I get it. <laughs> I'm old. <laughs> not very smart. <laughs> Funny. And so, you know, I get all those things. It just didn't work out because I anticipated my audience to be one thing. I wasn't as prepared as I should have been ahead of time and all those things. And then my audience was something else. And it just started me thinking about, you know, how do we live our lives? Because we live our lives, maybe we wouldn't say this very often, but if you sit down and you think about it a little bit, this is just true. We live our lives in anticipation of an audience, all right? We live our lives... Uh, thinking we maybe want to impress this group of people, or I, I sure wouldn't want to spill my drink in front of this group of people, or I know if I, if I say this in front of this group of people that they might be offended or they won't like that. Or, and so we, we temper our actions and our conversation and all sorts of things uh, based on the audience that we are in front of. How do we live our life? With what audience are we making decisions uh, you know, what, what audience in mind are we making decisions in our life? And, and I started to think, you know, really, as a follower of Jesus, I want to live my life with an audience of one. You know, I want, I want to live my life so that, that God looks at that life and says, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to live that life so that when, when the audience at large sees me, they say, oh, he's been with Jesus. He's concerned about that audience of one. And I think as followers of Christ, we can understand that. We all want to, we desire to, and we can live our life with an audience of one and having that audience be the right one. That's the other side of the coin, huh? We want to live our life for an audience of one. And, and even though this is an odd story, perhaps, in Acts chapter 5, it's a story that, that maybe we don't, uh, it's not first in line, you know, right after Daniel and the lion's den in the kids' Sunday school class. It's an important story that teaches us uh, four principles that can help us live 
with that audience of one in mind. In Acts chapter 5, we're going to take a look at the first 11 verses here in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. On that welcome packet, that bulletin, there's an outline on the back. You can find, uh, it'll have a page reference for Acts chapter 5 and the Bibles and the chairs around you. You can follow along with that outline. If you have downloaded the Wallula app, you can find all of this information there as well. It'll have the scripture uh, there, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, along with those uh, blanks to fill in and the sermon outline there. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This is what God's word says. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much, and she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things all right an interesting story and there's four principles taught here in this story in acts chapter five principle number one is that god isn't pleased with half-hearted effort with half-hearted effort god isn't pleased with half-hearted effort but a man named ananias with his wife sapphira sold a piece of property it's sort of a you know once upon a time beginning to the story it's this mundane sort of ordinary beginning and then the end uh, kind of isn't what we maybe would expect we're used to perhaps from our childhood or just from, uh, you know, hearing stories and reading stories. We're used to those once upon a time sort of beginnings to stories. And then we usually anticipate sort of a happy ending at the end of those stories. But even even stories from our childhood don't always have a happy ending. You, you remember maybe reading the story or, or more likely, I suppose, watching the movie Pinocchio, uh, the original story appeared in in uh, a series in an Italian newspaper and at the end of the story of Pinocchio it had the little puppet boy being hung from a tree not really a happy ending or how about Cinderella there's all sorts of versions of the story Cinderella but in one of the more original versions of the story uh, the prince is looking for his princess Cinderella taking around the shoe to see if it'll fit on you know various ladies feet which is a little weird anyway but he uh, comes upon the evil stepsisters who hack part of their foot off in order to try to fit into the shoe. Not your everyday, ordinary kind of happy 
ending to the story. And, and I suppose we begin with this story, and, and we read all the way to the end, and we know it's not a happy ending, it's not going to be there, but uh, get to that point, really. But we read a very ordinary beginning where we're introduced to a couple of people uh, in this story. We're, we're introduced to Ananias and Sapphira, which made me think about stories when we read them in Scripture. Because stories in Scripture are a lot like uh, the Super Bowl tonight. You know, the Super Bowl will be played tonight, and you'll hear announcers talk about the game, and there are two reasons that people will be mentioned uh, during that game broadcast. Either they've done something exceptionally well, or they've done something very poorly, right? They've made some kind of mistake. They have a penalty called on them, and their name will be mentioned, or they've scored a touchdown, and their name will be mentioned. And in the same way, you know, when somebody is named in Scripture, that's sort of, that's often the case, and uh, there's a couple of cases of that right away in our story. We, we read about Ananias and Sapphira. You go all the way to verse 11, you realize that they had some penalty flags called on them, right? You go back a few verses in Acts to the end of Acts chapter 4, and you're reading about the early church, and there's the guy that we're introduced to and in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, the end of chapter 4, by the name of Joseph. And Joseph is like a lot of folks in the early church. He, he had some property, property and, and he sold that property, and he gave the proceeds to the church because he wanted to care for individuals who were not able to care for themselves. We, we've talked before about how when people in the first century said yes to Jesus, that often sort of cut them off from what their life had used to be, the, the family that they used to associate with, the friends that they used to have, perhaps even their place in the marketplace, their, their, uh, the way they earn their living, all could have stopped because of their decision to follow after Jesus. And so the early church was also filled with people who, unlike Joseph, didn't have very much at all. And so Joseph was a guy who wanted to take care of these people. And in Acts chapter 4, at the end of Acts chapter 4, we learned that the early church started calling Joseph a Barnabas. If you remember your Sunday school lessons from when you were a kid, and you made a list of everything you know about Barnabas, probably at the top of the list, maybe the only only thing we remember about Barnabas is that Barnabas is a name that means encourager. And Barnabas, well, all, as we read about him through the book of Acts, is a guy who over and over and over again wanted to encourage people. He was the guy that when Saul, who would become Paul, the Apostle Paul, when Saul started out in the church and everybody in the church was like, this guy has been rounding up Christians, arresting them, and even killing them. I don't want anything to do with this Saul guy. Barnabas was the guy who said, no, you know, he's changed direction. We need to give him an, a, a chance. He wanted to encourage Paul and, and the rest of the church. And really, even beyond that, as the, the church in Antioch sends Barnabas and Paul out on the first missionary journey, it was on that trip where they took uh, John Mark, and John Mark got homesick or, or something happened, and he wanted to go home, and so he left. And Paul's like, John Mark, he, he gave up on us. We're never, he's not coming out with us again. It was Barnabas who said, no, we want to... You know, I don't know if he deserves a second chance, but neither did we, and Jesus gave us one. We're going to give him a second chance. And, and so Barnabas is a guy who encouraged over and over and over again, and the first time we meet him, he's living his life in this way that encourages others, and he wants to sell this property and give the proceeds to the church so that the church can care for the under-resourced among them. 
Ananias and Sapphira, you know, are named for a different reason. You know, they, they see what Barnabas has done, and they think, man, you know, everybody is so excited about that. That looks pretty good. And so they sold a piece of property. Verse 2 says, And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and bought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And still, we're, we're really at a once-upon-a-time sort of beginning to the story. Because uh, Ananias and Sapphira have done nothing wrong. You know, they, they owned a piece of property, and they sold that piece of property, and they decided to give some portion of the proceeds to the church. They certainly haven't sinned to this point. Until you start to sort of unpack verse 2 a little bit, and when you dive in a little deeper, Scripture gives us a glimpse. It kind of opens a window to the heart of Ananias and Sapphira, and maybe our perception of what they've done changes a little bit, and how God reacts makes a little more sense. And with his wife's knowledge, the Greek word that we translate as, you know, his wife having knowledge, there's a Greek word that means to collude. Uh, they schemed together. You know, they talked this out. It wasn't, it wasn't simply a plan or a decision that they made as a, as a couple. It was, a, it was an, a scheme to come together. To, they, saw the, they saw how appreciated and how much uh, people uh, admired what Barnabas and others had done in the early church, and they wanted to be admired too. And so they decided, uh, we're going to sell this property and we're going to give some to the church, but sort of with that selfish intent of, of having uh, that attention given to them and that admiration paid to them they also selfishly uh, didn't want to give all the money uh, away and so they kept some to themselves and they they colluded to do that he kept back for himself it's an interesting word here that's translated by this phrase he kept some back it's a greek word that's used a couple other times in in scripture in the new testament it's used in titus chapter 2 verse 10 if you if you read titus 2 uh, verses 9 and 10 you'll read about a bond servant who has responsibilities to his master and and it says you know you bond servants you have to obey your master and you should live peacefully with your master and you shouldn't pilfer that same greek word is translated in verse 10 as pilfering from your master's profits you shouldn't embezzle you shouldn't steal from your master's profits if you go back in the Old Testament in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you'll read in, in Joshua chapter 7 about this uh, individual by the name of Achan. They'd just come off a victory where God said, I want you to destroy all of the, all of the good stuff, all of the bounty that armies would keep for themselves. I want you to destroy that and burn that as an offering to your God. And one guy by Achan said, well, that doesn't make much sense. I'm going to keep some of this good stuff for myself. And in Joshua chapter 7, you read about that decision to keep back some of that bounty for himself to hide it away and it doesn't end very well for for Achan in Joshua chapter 7 either so it's this word that that means to embezzle and it reminds me I suppose that everything we have belongs to God anyway everything is God's we're simply stewards of the resources he's given us we're stewards of the time he's given us we're stewards even of the very life that he's given us everything belongs to him and when we keep back some for ourselves we're in a very real way uh, or we can be in a very real way stealing embezzling from him 
God isn't pleased with half-hearted generosity or half-hearted effort. Everything we do, whether in word or deed, we ought to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving honor to God the Father through him. Everything we do, we should go at it and work at it like we're working for God himself. And part of what we learn here in verses 1 and 2 of Acts chapter 5 is that everything we do, we're, we're working for God. It all belongs to him anyway. God isn't pleased with half-hearted effort. Principle number two is, is that if your aim is to please people, you'll miss every time. We're going to talk a little bit about what we mean as we continue on our story in verse 3 here. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter uh, kind of lays out the same scenario we've been painting, right? That there would be no sin if Ananias and Sapphira said, we have this piece of land, we want to sell it, we're going to give part of the proceeds to the church, we're going to do this, and we need to keep part for our, our own income or whatever the deal is, and there'd be no sin there uh, unless God had said, you know, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit kind of nudging and leading and guiding, and I think part of the deal here is, is that Ananias and Sapphira are are inspired in all the wrong ways, perhaps, by Barnabas and others who have given to the church and the attention that they've received. But I, I think that the, the Holy Spirit has worked through that as well and said, hey, you know, you guys could do this. You could do this, and you could sell this property and give uh, to, to God's work and to give to the church. And they said, yeah, we'll do that, sort of. You know, we'll do that, kind of. We'll do that in this half-hearted, half-way sort of way. Uh, it's a sin that's no different. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When you think about Adam and Eve in the garden, this one tree they couldn't eat from, you know, Eve was, was tempted by, by Satan and she ate the fruit. Why? Because she wanted to know all the stuff that God knew. She wanted to be like God. She, was, she had that sin of self in her heart, and Adam went along for those same reasons. Because he wanted, he wanted what God said you couldn't have. And Ananias and Sapphira are just selfishly seeking to, uh, to promote themselves and, and to get credit for what, what God wanted perhaps to do through them. And then, uh, just like Adam and Eve ran away in the garden to hide, they were ashamed of their sin, so they went away and covered themselves and hid from God in the garden. You know, Ananias and Sapphira are hiding from God as well, just kind of out in the open. You know, I, I know that I do this sometimes, right? Uh, we, we, we are embarrassed, we're ashamed of, of decisions, of the selfish decisions we've made, and we, we try to sort of hide in our self-righteousness. We kind of hide in the, look how spiritual I am, you know, clothes that we put on uh, for, for, uh, to be a part of, of church or whatever. And I think that's what Ananias and Sapphira are doing. They're hiding and they're, hey, look, we're just like Barnabas and these other folks who have served God in this way, and they're hiding from their own selfishness and their own sin. So then we get to verse 5, and this is where the story takes a, the story takes a turn, doesn't it? When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. Well, sure. 
Peter said, did you do this? And Ananias said, yeah, we gave all, all of the proceeds to the church. And then he fell down dead. And I read verse 5 and I think, God, I mean, overreact much? Right? I mean, that seems extreme, doesn't it? I, I think there's a couple things we need to consider as we ponder that question. Is God just overreacting in verse 5? I, the first thing that I think we, we shouldn't rush past is that this is the first time in the early church when there's been any act of, of selfishness or anything that would divide that young team, that family, that team, God's family. You know, all through the early chapters of the book of Acts, we're reading about how they're uh, acting with one heart, of one accord. They're all on the same page. And it ought to teach us, it ought to highlight for us how important that community, that acting in one spirit and one heart of one accord really is to God and how desperately he wants his family to work together, his team to be one, to act in, in one direction, to move in one direction. And in anything that divides that family, you know, God doesn't want any part of it. And this is the first time that an act of selfishness started to divide his family. You know, the second thing that I, I think we, we need to consider is when we think about is God overreacting, we, we need to think about, well, maybe we're not reacting enough. Are there some things that we just underestimate in our lives? And I know for me that there are two things that I absolutely underestimate much of the time. One of the things that I underestimate is the depth of my own sin. You know, I think we're reading a story that highlights for us that we are a people that, you know, we live our lives and no matter how hard we try, we will fall into the trap of comparing ourselves to others. And even as followers of Jesus, even though we would say, I don't think this is true theologically, or we might say, I know that this isn't what God's word teaches specifically, but it's so easy for us to sort of fall into this comparison trap where we think, you know, I know I've blown it, right? And I know I, know I have sin in my life, and I've committed sin, I've chosen selfishly, I've ignored God's will and direction in my own life, but have you thought about my neighbor? Because he's a real dirtbag, right? We, we look back in history and we kind of say, well, yeah, I mean, I know I've blown it some of the time, but I mean, look at these guys. Look at these people. And, and there's a little piece of us that even though, you know, theologically, like I said, we know this isn't true and it's not really what scripture thinks, we, we, we kind of convince ourselves that in the end it's going to work out okay because, you know, I'm not as bad as those guys, They've blown it. We underestimate the depth of our own sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, there's no ranking process in that verse, right? There, there's no way to categorize. There's no way to, to sort of compare one choice to another, one sin to another. We underestimate the, the depth of our own sin. I know I do. And the second thing that I underestimate is the cost of forgiveness that God offers me. You know, I, I underestimate, I, I take for granted the fact that God, the creator of everything we see, intervened in history. He entered the world. He was born as an infant. 
He, he grew up in a carpenter's home. He walked the same kinds of messy roads and dealt with the same kinds of annoying uh, neighbors that we deal with. He experienced so many of the same sorts of things that we experienced. He taught and he ministered, and then he died on a cross and was buried in a tomb in order to raise on that third day and change everything. You know, I underestimate the depth of my sin, and I underestimate the cost of that forgiveness. I, I, I can sometimes even get on board with Romans 3.23. Yeah, we've all sinned, we're all sinners. And then you jump to Romans chapter 6, and you say, well, yeah, but the wages of sin is death. You know, the, the last thing to consider is when you look at verse 5 here in, in Acts chapter 5, and you consider whether God overreacted, and Ananias fell down dead. You know, the harsh reality is that Ananias received exactly what Ananias deserved. And from thousands of years later, just reading those words on a piece of paper. Man, it's easy to think, yeah, he only received what he deserved. But when you consider Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that's me. Right? That's every one of us. And a few chapters later, that the wages of sin is death, that's me. That's every one of us. See, while it might be easy for us to say that Ananias received exactly what he deserved, it's much harder for us to come to terms with the fact that Ananias received exactly what I deserve. Ananias received exactly what you deserve. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. That's no kidding. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. You know, I've got kids, they're, they're all in high school now. My son's a senior. And, and sometimes I feel bad at church because we have this way at church sometimes. I was a youth pastor for about a decade. I, we've got a way at church that sometimes where we, you know, we'll see things that need to be done. You know, these chairs need to be stacked for this event. I bet, you know, high school could do that. You know, we, we have to move these tables from one area of the church to the other area. We got to set up for this thing. You know, I bet high schoolers could do that. And I feel bad, you know, sometimes that we, we kind of take for granted, you know, students and the, the, you know, the, their physical labor, their ability to be a physical labor force, right? And, and so I kind of feel bad. And, and for my son, I mean, for sure, my kids and my son, hey, I need your help at church. You're going to have to come up to campus and help me do this, and we're going to move this. And I feel bad sometimes until I read verse 6, right? I've never once asked him to carry a dead body out of the building. I don't, I don't know what these guys did. <laughs> What's more, I'm not sure why they were so ready, <laughs> you know? <laughs> The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. If your aim is to please people, you will miss, and you will miss the mark every time. You know, we have to get our audience right. We have to understand 
and stop underestimating the depth of our own sin and the cost of that forgiveness in our life. The fact that, you know, it's that old church saying, right, grace is free, but it's not cheap. Principle number three is that you're responsible for your own choices. I was going to use the word choice, but really, we're talking about sin here. You know, you're responsible for your own sin. Now that, that we fit into Romans chapter 3. We fit into Romans chapter 6. Now, we catch up with, with Sapphira here in, in verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. I mean, where was she for three hours? What's going on? And why doesn't she have any friends? You know, how did your husband dies in church, just drops dead, you know, they're like, hey, get some of the youth group to come carry this guy out. They bury him, and for three hours, nobody says a word to this woman. You know, I, I, how mean was she? I don't know, you know, right? What's going on? But in any event, she had no idea. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Verse 8. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. It's interesting that, Anna, that Sapphira gets an opportunity that Ananias never really had. You know, Ananias walks in, and this is the deal, and he drops down dead. Peter asks Sapphira, You know, is this really what happened? And I wonder what's going through her mind, right? I mean, wh what are the hamsters doing up there? Because I suppose she's thinking just what we'd all be thinking. You know, what's he know? Why is he asking? I better stick by my husband's story. You know, we came together. We decided this together. We're going to... We're gonna, I'm not going to turn my back on my husband. She's thinking some, you know, loyalty, some good kind of loyal thoughts there maybe. But she's got this opportunity to, to change direction. You remember a few weeks ago, Peter preaches the first gospel message, right? And, and the people, scripture says that the people were cut to the heart. You know, he said, you are responsible for Jesus and his death, the crucifixion, just like we're all responsible, and they were cut to the heart. And they said, what should we do? And Peter uses what has now become this church word, this Bible word, repent, which means to turn around, to change direction, to admit that you were heading in the wrong direction, that you, that you are, are fall into Romans chapter 3, that you are a sinner and you begin to understand the depth of your own sin. And Sapphira had that opportunity in that moment. And I think it's important because let's be realistic for one second. Today may be the day that is your opportunity to change direction. Just like Sapphira is presented with this, did you really sell that property for this much and you gave this much to the church? That's the promise you made to God. Today may be your opportunity to grab hold of what she refused to grab hold of. And she had some legitimate reasons. 
right? I get it. There are some good reasons, not good enough, but there are some good reasons that you're playing through your mind right now. Every one of us has this chance to change direction because we're responsible, just like Ananias was responsible and just like Sapphira is responsible for her own choices and her own sin. Immediately, in verse 10, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Principle number three is a simple one. We're all responsible for our own sin. We can't point the finger at our, our husband or this person who was doing it first or even the enemy. Principle number four is that a little fear of God is, is good or appropriate. And great fear, verse 11, came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. See, this is where... It, it's really hard, chapter 5, because I, we have a God who is so big and who loves us so much, and it is so good, and it is so fun and it, 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 to talk about how much he cares about us and how much he loves us. It is really hard to talk about the holiness of God. It's really hard because, you know, I can, think about, I can think about the people in my life that I love and that I think, man, I would do anything for them because I love them so much. And so I, I, I think and I can begin to understand a little bit uh, of how much God loves us. I mean, I, you know, I get that it's different and we can't come close and God's love is bigger than all of that and but when it comes to the holiness of God, a God who is perfect, absolutely righteous, and I look back on my life and I think, is there a day, an hour, you know, is this moment where I think that I've been perfect at something and I just can't figure it? And so it's really hard to come to terms with that. And so I understand that when we get to verse 11 and, and the church is afraid, they're filled with fear, and people around them, they're talking about, did you hear what happened at First Jerusalem down the road? Carrying dead people out, weird deal. I think, well, maybe, maybe God, this is an anomaly, but you go back and you can write these verses down. You, you read stories and like Jeremiah 25 verses 15 through 17, same price for sin. Leviticus chapter 10 verse 2, same price for sin. Joshua chapter 7 verse 25, the same price for sin. And you get to a place where you say, yeah, but that's the Old Testament. That's the grumpy God. He was in a much better mood in the New Testament. Except you get to Acts chapter 5, and you get to Acts chapter 12, verses 19 through 23. You get to Acts chapter 19, verse 16. There's the same consistent price that God disciplines and deals in the same way. It's so hard to think about his holiness and his righteousness that he's absolutely perfect. And so I can even understand when somebody might say, yeah, but that's not the God that I want to worship. 
They might even go as far as to say, that's not my God. And I just think about, you know, being a person who, who's maybe a little afraid to swim and you stand on the beach and you look at the ocean and you say, I don't like that the ocean is this big. It shouldn't be this deep. Or if I'm standing at the base of a trail uh, to hike a mountain and I look up at that mountain and I think, man, I don't like that the mountain is so high. I get it. But that's how tall it is. I understand, but that's how deep it is. If I could write the book, I would write it differently. But that's who God is. He is absolutely holy and absolutely righteous and absolutely loving. And to experience that love may mean that we have to come to grips with some fear. My son's a senior in high school. He's been wrestling this wrestling season. Uh, The team at their high school is really good. And the high school wrestling coach is, is, seems, is, seems to be a really great high school coach and teacher and, and all of that and does a great job. And I was sitting in the stands watching wrestling, you know, a month or so ago, and one of the dads leans over at me and he said, how do you think the coach does it? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, there's, what, 40, there's a ton of kids on this wrestling, 40 or 50 kids. These high school students, young men, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old? How does he get them to show up, you know, hours before school begins on a regular basis and not be late? How does he get them to discipline their diet so that they'll come in at weight when they need to be? How do those things happen? You know, what's he doing? Hey, he said, well, he's not really, we don't hear him yell. He's not really a yeller. He doesn't seem to, you know, have this, power over them or anything they don't seem to be afraid of him and I said well I think there's a couple things I think first of all it's obvious to me that this guy really cares about these kids that he loves them you know he does things that are pretty extraordinary to me I mean he goes out of his way to work for them and and but every day after practice he washes their practice clothes have you ever been around a wrestler They stink. You know, and he's not taking just your son's, his son's clothes to wash. He's washing 40, 50 sets of this stuff. Because he cares about them. Because for literally, they could catch a disease if, if they come back and wrestle in the same stuff day after day. And so instead of leaving it up to them or their moms, right, he loves them in this gross practical way i said i I know this is weird to talk about a wrestling coach but he loves those kids and i think they know it because it's easy for me to see and then i said you know i know i we i haven't heard him yell really i haven't really been at very many practices and seen consequences to poor choices but i've heard the stories and i don't think you should underestimate these young men's fear of this coach and I don't mean that in a negative way at all 
You see, because here's a coach who cares about them enough to do these things that I don't want to do. He cares for them and he loves them. And so he's earned the right to have these expectations. And when those expectations have been failed, uh, when people have failed to meet those expectations, he has the right to implement these consequences. And somebody who loves that deeply and cares that much, you know, this is a little lesson here for parents too, right? When the consequences don't matter, I'm not sure that balances out or makes any sense in that young person's mind. That I would not underestimate the fear that they have of that coach. And if that's true of a wrestling coach, I mean, how much more true should it be of the God who created the universe? This big, big, holy, loving God. A little fear is probably appropriate and even a good thing. You know, you think about the audience that we're living for. And online, it's so easy to, to see how we can make a mistake online and you're living for the wrong audience and then everybody sees it and, and the whole thing blows up. And you, you can maybe think of, of, of tweets or, or posts of, of people who, uh, man, you think they shouldn't have put that post on, on, on Facebook or or. Uh, Twitter or whatever on social media, and uh, you know I think about uh, this guy who uh, my son follows. I think he's a former baseball player, uh, Jose Canseco. He was a really good baseball player, kind of a odd dude a little bit, I guess. And and now he's retired, and is, so m- many of his posts are what you'd expect from a retired professional athlete. You know, it's kind of like, hey, I'm going to be at this card show. You know, uh, come and buy some autographs. Or, uh, you know, I live in this city, so you can come and take hitting lessons from me. And, and then, uh, once in a while, he'll just have a, a tweet that's really weird, like this one. Come play golf with me and learn about aliens and time traveling. You know, I'm not sure what he's talking about, right? And, I, you know, you look at that and you think, well, who in the world and what in the world is his audience? And I suppose, you know, maybe he knows, maybe he's on target. And in this really weird way, in this really weird way, I want my life to look like a Jose Canseco tweet. Because I want people to look at it and say, why in the world would he choose that? Why is he living like that? Why are those relationships different from my relationships? And when they dig in a little bit, I hope they see those four principles lived out and the fact that my life is lived with an audience of one. And so when they come confused, you know, that's why. They're not the audience we're living for. Let's stand and worship him.